four-time NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion, Luscious Rocky Reynolds. Yo, this is Rob Wallace, Jake Davis. <laughs> Listen to stories in pro wrestling on the Russellville Podcast. Justin. Incredible. This is ECW Original, The Enforcer, C.W. Anderson. This is former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Tim Storm. I'm Vinny Berry, and for more than 20 years, I've covered news and sports, specializing in pro boxing, MMA, and wrestling. This is the juicy one, Daniel Ramon. This is the fire starter, Jake Chris. To listen, go to WrestleVille.com or on Spotify. This is Steve Wilson, the man behind the Monster Congo Kong, and you are listening to the Russellville Podcast. Russellville, it's where wrestling lives. You are listening to the Russellville Podcast with the inimitable Vinny Berry, and it's the place where wrestling lives. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Berry, and my guest today is Keith Elliott Greenberg, author, wrestling historian, and all-around good guy. How you doing, Keith? Good. Thanks for the complimentary introduction. You're welcome. Hey, man, thank you so much. Anytime I get the opportunity to talk to you, you are a wealth of knowledge, and you're a good guy. You've You've helped me several times with advice and kind of how to handle things. And I really appreciate that about you. So from one author to another, thank you very much. And thank you for everything you've done for professional wrestling. Thank you. And I I always enjoy talking to you or messaging with you, as you well know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know we're both two busy guys, but uh, we're not that far even though we live across the country, right? We're not that far from each other. I mean, look, we're, uh, you know, we're we're on Zoom right now. It's as if we're in the same room, practically. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about Follow the Buzzards, the book that you released last year. Nice piece of work, man. Thank Seriously. You. I am so blown away by how you connected the dots with um i guess pro wrestling and uh kind of like the dates of of news events of the covid and you know what was happening in the country and in the world why all this stuff was going on and then how you connect wrestling and how wrestling evolved because of the pandemic Thank you. I mean, you know, the, there's one book that I re- uh, read several years ago. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. And it's about the 1977 New York Yankees. But it is told in the context of everything that was unfolding in New York City at the time, because 1977, the city was bankrupt. You had uh, the son of Sam serial killings. You had um, the blackout of 1977, which resulted in massive looting. And then you had, in the middle of the World Series, um, uh, an arson in the Bronx. And Howard Cosell said on you know national television, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. So they juxta- the author juxtaposed news events with sports events. And I look at the COVID-19 era as a period when wrestling couldn't completely be escapism. Because if you're wrestling in an empty arena, 
you know that it's the middle of COVID-19. So, um, you know, it, at times it was hard to figure out, you know, what was wrestling and what was real and, um, you know, what, what was going on in the world had an impact on what was going on in professional wrestling. And so I felt it was critical to jump back and forth between those. Now, there are some people who said that I was selective in the news events I picked. Some One person thought I was a bit too critical of the uh, former president. I was just repeating what was being said. And Donald Trump is in the WWE Hall of Fame, and he says things that get people's attention, whether you like him or not. And some of those things, you know, I repeated in the book. I wasn't trying to take a stance so much as I was trying to chronicle what was being done and what was being said. Yeah, but it's it's so hard to just say anything that touches uh, anything political without someone, you know, citing you or, you know, oh, you're this and you're that. And he's mm-hmm. like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just repeating what what I heard. Exactly. What they said. So, and, and, you, know, you know, these things are happening. You know, uh, the the day of significant wrestling events, there were major things happening in the news, whether those involved COVID-19, whether those involved the U.S. presidential election, whether it involved Brexit in the U.K., whether it involved China quarantining people in entire cities and not allowing them to go outside, you know, you can't just talk about these wrestling events in isolation. And you did a, a fabulous job. I, I I was just blown away. When I first got the book, I think I read like five or six chapters in one sitting. And I I haven't I have I have never done that, right? And since then I've been picking up and reading it. And I'm just I'm like I said, I'm just the way you connected the dots and the way that you explain really you can go off into your mind and 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 see these things and with what i remember of the pandemic i was like oh okay well then it kind of it kind of uh it fades from your memory very fast it it does because because news events were moving very quickly it very um, i i ended up fairly recently doing the audio book and when I was recording the audiobook and I had to reread a book that I wrote, I was saying, I can't even believe that happened or that seems like a dream because the COVID era was so different than everything else we experienced. And when I'm reading this, I forgot what many things were like. For instance, there's a section where um, WWE is attempting to sanitize the performance center. And there's a quote from, I believe, Triple H, where he says, you know, we shine ultraviolet light on all the equipment, which is supposed to pierce the wall of the virus. That's what the the cleaning company told us. Now you're thinking that's not going to make a difference. But back then, it sounded like they were at the cutting edge of keeping their employees safe. And in their minds, they were. So it's strange to revisit that type of thing. Right. No, absolutely. And then also, too, when you think back to that, when you think back to that time, and for me, it's like someone will say something to me like, 
Well, you know, that was last year. And I was like, was it last year or was it? No, it wasn't last year. It was two years ago. Well, also in our private lives, there's almost like an edit between pre-COVID and post-COVID. So there was a period where it's almost like we were in in suspended animation. So what happened in 2019 doesn't seem like it was in 2019 because, you know, COVID was in the middle of it. So it's longer ago than we realize. Right, right. Tell me, I've, I've, I've thought about this many times and I probably can come up with a pretty good conclusion. The title, Follow the Buzzards. Okay, Follow the Buzzards. And I, I, I mentioned that in the book. It's a, 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 a something that Bray Wyatt said a few times in promos. And um, not on many occasions, but Follow the Buzzards. But obviously, the buzzards are circling overhead because there's impending death. And that was the mood during the COVID era. particularly before the vaccine, we didn't know what could kill us. So it was if the buzzards were circling overhead and we're just trying to get by and trying to make sense of this. And if you're in the wrestling business, it's one of the few forms of entertainment that was still being produced. So you're producing wrestling while the buzzards are circling. What was the one thing, I guess, when you were working on this book, what was the one thing that maybe kind of took you back by like, wow? Well, in some ways, it was the resourcefulness of the smaller promotions. Um, AEW and WWE, you know, they're companies that have large budgets. But um, I tried to make this an international book. So I ended up interviewing a promoter in Finland who was expanding into Estonia and they would do outdoor shows at a biker festival in Estonia, you know, in the former Soviet Union in the middle of this period. That guy also uh, did a show inside an oil tanker or, or, or like, I believe it was, was it an oil? Yes, it was an oil tank. And The reason he did that was that he couldn't have fans. And so there'd be this eerie echo when the guys would slam each other. And it was a cool kind of look. So here's a guy with, you know, virtually no budget, but he's intriguing the fans by selecting a specific location. You know, GCW was doing shows in... um, outdoors in a park in Indianapolis regularly. And when I asked Brett Lauderdale, the promoter, why they were during the day, he said to save money on lighting. And, um, you know, then you had Dirty Ron McDonald, a promoter for the Fist promotion in San Diego. He was doing um, drive-in shows where people would be told a secret location because I don't even think there were supposed to be gatherings and people would be in their cars. They'd be allowed to sit outside their cars, but they were still socially isolated. And people would go to this location and there'd be a ring set up in a parking lot somewhere. And that was what impressed me. These people with very limited budgets you know, were fulfilling a need. And the wrestling fans wanted that need filled and the wrestlers needed that need fulfilled 
how were you able to track down uh, this information as far as like Dirty Ron McDonald? You know, one promoter, one wrestler tells me about it. Uh-huh. You know, I went to some of these indie shows and, you know, I was always given the run of the place. Uh, you know, Warrior Wrestling out of, uh, you know, Chicago Heights, Illinois. You know, they do shows on the high school football field, which was convenient because the promoter is the high school principal of Marion High School, Marion Catholic High School in in Chicago Heights. And so, you know, fans would be in pods, socially distanced. They have an entire football field to spread out on. And then the wrestlers would be telling me where else they've been working. And they'd go, oh, you know who's a really cool guy you should talk to? Oh, you know who's a wrestler I worked with who has a really interesting take on this? And that was how I did it. Wow, interesting. Yeah, you just... Followed the breadcrumbs, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's 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 what we do. <laughs> yeah. So uh any any final thoughts on this book? Well, I, I will say this. When the book first came out in October, and it just shows how um the world moves so quickly, a lot of people told me they didn't want to read the book because COVID, the COVID era was so fresh in their minds that they didn't want to relive something they just got away from. More and more people are telling me that they just started reading the book now because enough time has elapsed that they feel comfortable taking a breath, going back and saying, wow, I forgot how surreal it was. Well, nice job, man. Thank you. I Seriously. And, and any historian, uh, Wrestling fan, anybody can get their hands on this and really appreciate the work into this because this is just chronicled so well. So thank you. I I greatly appreciate that. Yeah, man. Hats off to you. Hats off to you. But you know what? That that's what you do, my friend. (laughs) That's what we both do. So uh we lost two amazing wrestlers, uh very, very I think iconic wrestlers, superstar yes. Billy Graham and the Iron Sheik. Uh, both, we lost former WWE champions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We lost superstar Billy Graham in May and we lost the Iron Sheik in June. And I actually spoke at both funerals. Um, this has been a tough year for me. I was very close with Lanny Poffo and he passed away in February. Um, he was one of my closest friends in wrestling. And then uh, I wrote books with both Graham and the Iron Sheik. And, um, you know, then they passed away. And I'd also written a book that was not a wrestling book with uh, Tom Steven, who was the uh, drummer in the Jeff Healy band, a very popular band out of Canada. And he passed away. So three people I've written books with uh, have died since the beginning of the year. And... um, you know, I was on Busted Open recently and Thunder Rosa said, how do you process it? It's like, I don't know how I process it. I mean, you know, I don't know if you can process something that comes at you so fast. But um, philosophically, I, you know, had to find a way to cope. Writing the eulogies definitely helped because I could express how I felt about these people. But also it caused me to reassess my my life 
and feel pretty good about myself because these were very interesting human beings as well as very larger than life personalities. And they were my friends. And it's a privilege to be mourning people like that, that I've gotten so close to them that I'm grieving for them. It's very, very sad that they're gone, right? But yes. golly, aren't you glad that you got to know these people? Yes, of course I'm glad that I got to know these people. And, yeah. you know, it's a privilege to have had the opportunity to know them and know them in ways that the fans did not. And, you know, just in personal ways. Uh, you know, superstar Billy Graham was a very gifted artist and he gave me a print of... Uh, one of his paintings, which is, you know, now I value, I valued at the time, but I really value now. And, you know, the Iron Sheik, I saw him interact with his family and I saw what a fundamentally decent man he was behind all the bluster. And, you know, I got to know his family as well. And, uh, you know, I was very touched that they asked me to speak at his funeral. And I have to say, it was a joy to spend time with them, even though it was under those circumstances. Right. Yeah, no, I I bet. You know, going to superstar Billy Graham, when you, you think back to his reign as WWF champion, or WWWF champion, I guess, right? I mean, yes. he goes, he's old school, right? And so... Yes. When when you you look back at his reign, I mean, very iconic and in in a great and very and, and very odd for the time because yeah. they did not look WWWF that people stayed champions for years. I right. mean, it's unthinkable now. Bruno won the title the first time in '63 and held held on to it until '71. Then you had Pedro Morales. I believe he had something like a three-year run. And then he lost to Stan Stasiak, who only kept the title a short period of time. And then it went back to Bruno. Superstar Billy Graham was champion for nearly a year. A villain who was a wrestling champion for nearly a year. And that was very rare because WWF fans were not accustomed to that. The other thing with Graham was he won the title in 1977. That same 1977 I spoke about when Son of Sam was picking uh, picking off uh, couples in parked cars, when uh, we had riots in New York, when punk rock was exploding in certain precincts of New York, and um, when disco was uh, thriving in New York. And so... Graham, with his flamboyance, with his rhythmic catchphrases, with his, uh, you know, tie-dyed outfits, really fit into the texture of the city at that time. And Vince Sr. had made a decision that he was just keeping Graham there as a caretaker champion for Bob Backlund. Graham was getting cheered, and he wanted to turn babyface and he wanted his reign extended. And then Senior told him, look, a deal's a deal. You know, you knew what the plan was going in. And Graham actually went through a uh, emotional spiral in the uh, aftermath of losing to Backland. 
you know, that's when people say it's not real. It was pretty real to him. Right, right. And what what is so ironic about this is we're talking about superstar Billy Graham, and we're talking about the Iron Sheik, and then you bring him Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund won the title from superstar Billy Graham and lost it to the Iron Sheik. Right, right. It's like bookends, bookends around Bob Backlund. And and you know what I I uh, heard an interview with Bob Backlund when when he lost the title he went through an emotional turmoil too he really did yes and um, you know I think in both cases they felt pushed aside and you know each loss signified the end of a certain era now inter- ironically now that you brought this up. Superstar Billy Graham thought he brought color to the ring. And then it was going to Backlund, who he thought was more of a traditional athlete and not a sports entertainer, per se. Backlund, when he lost, thought he was a pure athlete. And now this era, we were going into the Hulkamania era. So now the color of superstar Billy Graham was coming back, but in the form of Hulkamania, and Hulk Hogan was inspired by superstar Billy Graham. So it was in ways we never saw before. But I think each man struggled with the notion that their time had passed. Yeah. Or so it seemed. I mean, Backlund had a great heel run in the 90s, which, you know, to me, that's some of the, the most fun stuff he ever did. Yeah, what what did you think about superstar Billy Graham when when he went to Florida and he was doing like the the karate thing? What? Well, that was a mistake. Um, he told me that. I believe, and I've said this before, that he was still in his depression, and um, he didn't he did not know martial arts. He explained that to me. Vincent Kennedy McMahon, who loved superstar Billy Graham as a performer when he was champion, and would have. He told me this would have been my Hulk Hogan. So he wanted to bring back superstar Billy Graham. Now he purchased the company from his father. And um, instead he gets this guy who's kind of depleted looking and he's wearing, you know, a gi and he's has a shaved head. And he's doing Kung Fu moves and he doesn't know martial arts. I think it was a form of self-sabotage. Yeah. And 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 what do you think that, you know, in superstar Billy Graham's prime, you know, what do you what do you think it was that? I mean, look, obviously he had this steroided up body, but it was more than that. You know, Sailor Art Thomas had a very, um, you know, notable physique. There had been Tony Atlas did as well. You had other guys with great bodies but he could speak and some of it is actually related to his time as a young man uh, going on the evangelical circus and picking up the cadence from these tent revival preachers. And, um, you know, he was a fan of Muhammad Ali and he, uh, you know, he enjoyed uh, rhyming promos and, and he was an artist. So he, designed and color coordinated color coordinated his outfits so it was really a confluence of many of his talents 
Right, right. So, and and let's talk. We got a few minutes left. Let's talk about the Iron Sheik and what a what a heel, right? I mean, yeah, the, great heel. The the ultimate heel. I mean, golly, you can't. Well, I mean, again, look at the timing. Now, he had been the Iron Sheik on and off since 1976. But it didn't mean that much because at the time the Shah Varan was in power and Iranians were, the, the Iranian government were allies of the U.S. government. It was when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over and the Americans in the U.S. embassy were taking hostage that people felt emasculated by the uh, by Iran and um the Iron Sheik at that time was wrestling as the great Hussein Arab in uh, in the WWF uh, against Bob Backlund. Uh, and then when he went to Charlotte, his next territory in 1980, he really embraced the Iranian villain persona. And, you know, people were fired up. I mean, the... Iranian hostages had just been released in January on the day of Reagan's inauguration. So when he was praising the Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, that was real to people and they really wanted to kill him. And I remember in 1983, when he won the WWF title, I was not working for the WWF magazine yet. I was writing a periodic column for the Staten Island Advance newspaper. And myself and Keiji Nakayama, the Japanese photographer who was one of my best friends, and I still consider him a dear friend, even though he's back in Japan. Uh, we went to the Iron Sheik's room afterwards and I interviewed him and Cage took some pictures and the Iron Sheik's wife was there. And, you know, he was talking like a regular guy. His wife was sitting there and he said, usually I don't like her coming to the arena because the people hate me so much. And that's good for me. It's good for business. But um, I'm afraid for her because what if someone figured out who she was and tried to hurt her? And, um, you know, that's the life he chose. And that was not an easy life for anybody involved in that family. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean... We all know that pro wrestling is a very emotional sport, right? I mean, yes. fans become very emotional about it. And so, in a, in a sense, that, that is where the realism comes in, you know. When right. I, I, I call it I call it the heart punch, you know, because, you know, you can try to convince somebody with something, right? Or, you know, you're trying to convince somebody, hey, spend this money or, hey, this is the right thing to do. But boy, as soon as you hit them right there, man, you can get right. them to do anything. And that's right? what the Iron Sheik did. And that's and also, what he did. You, you know, I was watching the Wrestling Classic, which was the first pure pay-per-view after WrestleMania that WWE tried uh, from 1985. And I was watching with my oldest kid, who's a filmmaker in New York, uh, Dylan Mars Greenberg. And uh, what Dylan noticed was back then, guys like Piper and the Sheik, there wasn't an entrance ramp. They walked through the, they walked literally down an aisle. 
And so the sheet was like walking by fans who all wanted to tear him apart. And they were this close to him. You know, there wasn't the security that exists now. So he's in that sea of humanity and, you know, facing the possibility of being stabbed at any time. Right. And, and a lot of those guys were, you know. Yes. Yes. And we've heard those stories over and over again. I think and it's mentioned in the Superstar Billy Graham book. Blackjack Mulligan was stabbed by a guy who dipped the knife in uh, pig grease. So so he'd get quickly infected. Crazy. Well, with that, on that happy note, and I and I don't know what else. To, I don't know what, what else. where are you going to go from there? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show. My last final question, though, when when we sum up uh, superstar Billy Graham and the Iron Sheik, you know, what do you think they those two men? I mean, when you think about those guys, what was their legacy? Uh, well, the the Sheik's legacy was certainly um, that he was a heel, perhaps unlike any other. I mean, Ed Farhat, the original Sheik, was the most vicious heel, but he didn't talk. Here's the other thing. The Iron Sheik learned how to speak English by watching Sesame Street, and yet he was so dedicated to doing his job that rather than let an English speak, a natural English speaker manager do the talking, he would take the mic and do impossible to forget promos in his broken English. Yes. You know, and, you know, we remember all his little catchphrases and they were funny. So he was hated but he was funny and he knew he was funny. So, you know, his nephew, or the uh, Jean Megan said at his funeral, um, he was a champion at everything he did. And, you know, that included, by the way, he was a champion when he decided to get sober. You know, we've heard all the drug stories, but then he became the ultimate family man. Uh, yeah, and his family was fortunate is particularly his grandchildren to enjoy those years with him. And he even said, and he was a champion at sometimes mortifying his own daughters. So, you know, I just think in terms of quality of what he did, the Iron Sheik just had an ethic unlike anybody else. Superstar Billy Graham, he's the prototype for Jesse Ventura, Hulk Hogan, Scott Steiner, Triple H, and that legacy is still being felt. And uh, two guys that will never be replaced, right? right. Imitated, but not duplicated. Not never duplicated. Yeah. All right. Well, Keith, thank you, man. Thank you so much. And we're going to do this again. This I is the second so. time I've had you on, but I love talking to you. And, and you. yeah, I appreciate your advice and, and your guidance in, in, in my career. And, and thank you so much, man. Thank you. I, I greatly appreciated being here. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast, where wrestling lives. The 
pro wrestling vault. 35 short stories including Harley Race, Barrett Brown, Ricky Morton, Wardell Walker, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 400 photos from the independent scene, get your book today by going to Russellville.com. Russellville, it's, it's where wrestling, wrestling lives. lives.